Welcome to But Jesus Drank Wine and other stories that kept us stuck. I'm Mead. And I'm Christy. In this podcast, we'll explore the stories that kept us, well, stuck, wanting to drink and not wanting to drink all at the same time. Join us as we show you that freedom from alcohol does not have to mean a life sentence of misery and missing out, but actually means living an authentic life full of peace, joy, and purpose. Hello. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hi. How you doing? Hey. We're oh, my- good. We're I don't know why I'm answering for you, Mead. Sorry, I'm good. <laughs> well, no, we're we're excited. You can answer for me always. Um, we are so excited. This one is for our tennis-loving gals out there. Uh, and Lucas Pruitt, youth pastor at my church, who is loves all things tennis and anything sports competition, literally the most competitive human being in the planet, on the planet. Um, because today's special guest, Jeff Salzenstein, he's here with us today. We have a lot of things in common, aside from the professional tennis thing that we'll get into. But um, wait, Meet, are you a professional tennis player? No. No. Oh, okay. Aside from that. Oh. <laughs> so I, we have a lot of things in common aside from the fact that he was a you know professional tennis player. And... Aside. Oh, sorry, I missed that. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you know our, our listeners will enjoy listening today as Jeff battled with some of mm. the greatest tennis players in the world, like Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, Andy Roddick. My 12-year-old, my 12-year-old heartthrob. <laughs> I know. Can you tell that story real quick, Christy? Uh, that I was literally tennis obsessed. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Probably, Jeff, like around, like in the somewhere, I think in your heyday. But yeah, I would, I would, when we, they did the tournament at UCLA, I would stand in front of the the men's yeah, locker sure. room, <laughs> and I have my picture on Boris Becker's shoulders. I have, oh my gosh, Pete Sampras, Michael. I have like all the autographs. I was like obsessed. So yes, I'm really excited for this. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so uh, Jeff, as a former professional tennis player, first started playing for Stanford. He led his team to back-to-back NCAA national championships, and he broke into uh, the top 100 in the world rankings at the age of 30 after two major surgeries that almost ended his career. Um, From the adversity that Jeff faced as an elite athlete, he relentlessly pursued optimal performance, specifically focusing on physical, mental, and emotional emotional health strategies. Um, Jeff has worked and studied with top experts in the world in the areas of mental conditioning, stress reduction, emotional intelligence, longevity, biofeedback, nutrition, injury prevention, and human movement. And today he serves as a dynamic keynote speaker and performance coach, um, fellow coach in the house. Uh, He's committed to helping CEOs, executive leadership teams, and management teams achieve optimal performance. He leads them through his method called the zone of excellence to achieve the next level of execution and performance. Yeah. So his successful framework helps individuals and organizations embrace a growth mindset, eliminate limiting beliefs, which is obviously our connection here too with, you know, we talk about another word for the stories that Mm -hmm. keep us stuck. Mm -hmm. Another words for that are limiting beliefs. And so not only does Jeff bring his experience and his wisdom with all the things here. He also has a personal connection to the work we do as Freedom from Alcohol coach coaches. And so um, we welcome him and are excited to kind of hear his mm. story and yeah, just get to be blessed by this time with him yeah. today. So thanks, Jeff. Thank you welcome. so much for that intro. I wonder where you got all that information. Maybe maybe my bio, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, it's wonderful to be here. This is a long time coming and uh, uh, you know, Mead, we've gotten to know each other the last few months through a mutual friend, and uh, we're all on a on a similar path, growth and and transformation, and and help in serving others. And so, I'm really excited to be here and to share share some of my stories and insights and help the listeners. So, why don't you um, kind of start with where your story yeah. begins? And yeah. Well, for all those tennis obsessed fans listening, and for Christy, I'm going to start yes. at the U.S. <laughs> Open. Uh, it's 1990. I was really hoping you were going to do that. No, we're going to start. We're going to start right there. It's 1997. Uh, playing in the second round of the U.S. Open. I had won my first round as a wild card. I'd gotten to about 140 in the world. And I'm playing inside of Arthur Ashe Stadium in front of 24,000 people. And I'm playing against world number two, Michael Chang. 
And I come out on the court and in the first four games, I was really nervous. And we can get into the, the anxiety and the, just, I was really pent up and somehow, some way, because of my big 125 mile an hour lefty serve, I was able to hold serve twice. And so it was two all in the first set. And I remember taking a deep breath and I just relaxed into that moment. And I started playing the best tennis of my life for the next 15 or 20 minutes. And that got me into position, position to be up five, four in the first set. I was serving, I had broken serve. So I was up five, four in the first set. I had set point. I hit a great wide slice serve. I come in with this, hit this beautiful backhand uh, volley to the open court. And Chang was the fastest guy on, on tour. He couldn't even run the, the volley down. And I win the first set on Michael Chang at the US Open. The crowd absolutely erupts. I see all these guys in suits from, from Wall Street that were there in the front row. They're standing up, they're pointing at me like, where did this guy come from? And the TV camera zooms in on me. And John McEnroe was like, yeah, Saul Z, he's from Stanford, just like me. Look at this guy. The TV cameras zoom in on me and I've got this little sly smile on my face like, look what I just did. But the inside story around that is that in that moment, the match ended. And the reason that the match ended was because the dominant thought in my head was, thank God you didn't embarrass yourself tonight. And I ended up losing that match in four sets. It was an entertaining match. I didn't embarrass myself. I succeeded. I achieved my goal of not embarrassing myself. So that's where we start with limiting beliefs. That's where we start mm -hmm. with, you know, these athletes that are doing extraordinary things. They're also human beings as well with limiting thoughts as well and limiting beliefs. And so from that experience took me on a journey uh, to learn about the mind, to learn about the body, to learn about uh, the soul and, and to understand, you know, what was holding me back as a professional athlete. And, uh, there's, there's more to that story after that match and what happened, but I, th I think I'll stop there and see if there's any questions or insights. And again, I can take you on a journey back to how it all started. And I can take you on a journey forward, depending on where you want to go. Yeah. So I, I just, I think what I love and what you say there, it's, it's how powerful our thinking is in creating, I mean, an entire tra trajectory, whether it's on a tennis court or when we're, you know, exploring our relationship to alcohol, the power in our thinking is so massive. And um, without awareness for that impact, it can take us, you know, in a million different directions with, with or without our um you know, without our control, so to speak. So yeah, I think you paint a beautiful picture of, of the power of that. And I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear more how that has related sure. to where you, where you are now and what you do. Yeah. Sure. Well, then the, the next day I found myself in a midtown Manhattan hotel room with Jeff Schwartz, who was Pete Sampras's agent at the time. He's a super agent. He's sitting with the junior agent, David Agdis, who's now at the tennis channel. And uh, they sat me down. They said, you're the hot and now American player. You know, we represent IMG. We're going to sign you to a contract. We think you're going to do big things in pro tennis. And so I signed on the dotted line. And three months later, uh, I had an off-season uh, ankle injury that was misdiagnosed for eight months. And finally, I ended up having ankle surgery. And I came back from that six months later, my first tournament back, I had knee surgery. So by the time I was 25 years old, my body was failing me. And it mm. was in this time through this adversity, which is what I really speak on and coach is how do you bounce back from adversity and how do you bounce back quickly? You know, not, not struggle for years and years and years. How do you bounce back in maybe a day or two or in five minutes? What are the tools and the strategies or the ways of healing to be able to do that? But I started going on this journey. I went to my first yoga class. I started eating organic food before it was considered cool. I mean, this is 25 years ago. I was going to alfalfas and, and wild oats before it was called whole foods. And I really <laughs> went deep into nutrition and, and, and healing the body because I wasn't satisfied with the answers that I was getting in the kind of the medical world with my ankle and my knee. And I basically, you know, was at that crossroads. Do I quit pro tennis and get a real job at 25 or do I stick with it? And I decided to stick with it. And, you know, that led me again on this journey to learn all about the mind and the body and the spirit. And, and I broke the top hundred in the world for the first time at the age of 30 after 
a lot of trials and tribulations. You know, tennis is a lonely sport. You do a lot of things alone and there's positives and negatives to that. Um, but I wouldn't trade that journey for the world because little did I know it was going to set me up for becoming a coach. And we'll get into how I transitioned from being a player uh, to a coach. But, you know, my journey is interesting because I made it interesting. I've always been really curious. I've asked a lot of questions. I didn't accept the status quo. And um, so I'm, I'm really blessed that I've been able to kind of follow this story arc of of kind of the hero's journey, if you will. You know, I started playing tennis when I was five years old and I was a, I was a, a, a national champion at 12 coming from a ski state in Colorado, not a tennis state. And um, I struggled in my teenage years. So those that are listening that are, that are parents that have teenagers, you probably can relate to some of the struggles that the teenagers have. Hey, I was number one in the country at 12 and I was losing first round at 15 uh, in the nationals. So that's a time when, when a kid would quit tennis or quit a sport because they were on top and now they're at the bottom and people were, you know, kicking me saying this guy, he's done, he's over. So I rededicated myself as a teenager that allowed me to go to Stanford. And when I was at Stanford, I had a great freshman year, but I had the worst serve in college tennis. And so instead of following the herd and playing all these tournaments in the summer, I went back to Denver to try to solve my serve. And I had this accidental transformation where I added 20 miles an hour to my serve that changed the trajectory of my life. And I ended up going back to Stanford and playing number one and being dominant in college because I transformed my serve. And the lesson there is that you're always this far away from a transformation. You know, mm. one little step, one decision, one turn in the road can change your life in a positive way. It can also change your life in a negative way. And so, you know, that accidental transformation of, of developing that serve led me on that path to, to play pro tennis and to have all the experiences that I've had. So uh, I feel very blessed that I've had accidental transformations. And also I would like to think conscious mm -hmm. transitions and transformations. And so when I coach people, I really try to help them through the transitions I try to help them with their blind spots to, to transform. And again, I'll stop there because I unpacked a lot uh, to get us to the, the moment of kind of when I transitioned from, from playing to coaching. And so if you have any questions, I'll, I'm here to answer them. Yeah, I, I have a question because I heard you talk about it on um, another podcast, but like just about how you came to the realization of alcohol, like not drinking basically being the ultimate health hack, right? And the right. And, and something that was so helpful for up-leveling everything. Can you mm -hmm. speak a little to that? Yes. Let's get into that. So my alcohol journey, um, you know, I was the, uh, I was the golden child growing up and, you know, I've done a lot of work, a lot of healing work around trauma, childhood, childhood adversity. And what I've, in, in the most simple way that I can explain it, what I've come to realize is that when my parents divorced, when I was four years old, uh, you know, father wasn't in the picture, although he was my first tennis coach. And when I say he wasn't in the picture, uh, he didn't raise me in the home from age five until as I, as I grew up. So he was still very much in my life, but not living with me. But as a four-year-old, that could unconsciously be very confusing. Like where'd my dad go? Um, and uh, what I think I took on was hey, in order for me to get love, in order for me to be validated, instead of getting into trouble, I'm just going to be perfect. Mm. I'm going to get the 4-0. I'm going to be number one. I'm going to work harder than everyone because if I, cheat, if I achieve and if I'm the best at something, then everyone will notice me. Then everyone will love me. And so my journey was around perfectionism, around being the golden child. And so that took me into sports, into tennis, where, again, kind of the goody two-shoes. I never was getting into trouble. Um, I was always the, in, in our friend group, I was always the guy that say, Hey guys, I don't have a good feeling about this one. You know? So I, I clearly had some intuition about, you know, doing those things. I still got into a little bit of trouble, but, um, what happened in high school was again, I was the last person to get drunk. I remember it was, um, after a state championship that we lost and, uh, I, I got drunk for the first time and everyone thought it was funny because I was like the last, last of the Mohicans. Um, getting into college, it was kind of like, kind of like, um, weekend warrior type stuff. But as a tennis player, you're so focused on, you know, your performance and your health, your ranking that you don't want drinking to sidetrack that. So I would pick my spots, but 
as you all know, that there's this connection around beliefs that you know alcohol means more fun. And that's mm -hmm. what it was like in high school. That's what it was in the toga parties in the SAE house at Stanford. Um, <laughs> but I always kind of hid from that because I had the excuse, hey guys, I got to go practice. And so I was always uh, respected in that like, hey, Jeff's serious about his tennis. We're not going to we're not going to mess with him. We're going to let him have a pass. We're not going to haze him and, uh, and such. When I had all those injuries in my mid-20s, um, I would go in between. I'd go three months where I'd be a, a monk or a hermit and I wouldn't drink at all. And then I'd go three months where I would go party. I'd go, you know, because, you know, I'm not playing tennis and I'm depressed and I'm anxious about my ankle and my knee. And so I kind of went on that yo-yo of like, don't drink and then go party. And usually, again, I would drink and I'm just going to be fully transparent and, and real here. The reason I would drink was to get attention from women. It wasn't to drink with the guys. That was boring to me. It was if I go to a bar and I have a few drinks, then I have the liquid courage to maybe talk to a girl. You know, I was pretty shy, fear of rejection. Um, and then bringing us up to like really fast forwarding. That was a similar pattern on the pro tour where I really picked my spots. I didn't drink a lot. It wasn't a problem, but certainly just drinking is going to affect your performance, even if it's 1% or 2%. I'm going to fast forward to life after tennis. Four and a half years ago, I, I was still kind of recreational drinking. Mainly if I was dating, I'd go out and I felt like I needed a drink because the other person was drinking. If she was drinking, having a couple glasses of wine that I needed to. And so I think my relationship with alcohol was always more of like that means to an end of being liked, being loved, um, fear of rejection, taking down the, you know, the inhibitions a little bit. Um, but it never was a problem. Four and a half years ago, I went to a workshop, an alcohol-free workshop. And I remember they talked about the cost and the price of alcohol, you know, financial, um, time, um, sleep, all of that. And they brought in nutritionists and sleep experts. And at the end of the workshop, the uh, coach said, okay, we're going to do a 30-day challenge, alcohol-free challenge. Who's in? When you go back home, who's going to do it? And I'd say 80% of the room raised their hand. And me not wanting to conform to everybody, I didn't raise my hand. I said, 30 days, that's a long time to commit. I'm not sure if I want to even do that. I remember getting on the plane from LA to Denver and there was that niggle. There was that niggle like, oh, maybe I should try this. Mm. So I went home and I did the 30-day challenge. Um, 30 days became 60 days, the next 30-day challenge. And I did it with myself. There was no accountability. It was just me. Um, and then 60 became 90. And then when I was, at the time I was, I was dating, I was single, I uh, would just tell women, hey, I just want you to know I'm doing this alcohol-free challenge because as you all know, in the, in the world, if you say you're alcohol-free, people assume you have a problem. So if you're online mm -hmm. dating, they're going to say, oh, is this guy coming out of AA or what? Yeah. There's a whole stigma around it. And so mm -hmm. I would just yeah. tell them, listen, yeah, I'm just doing this challenge. And so now it's been four and a half years. Uh, I haven't touched a drop of alcohol. I have no desire. Um, the belief systems have completely shifted. And I walk into rooms and I tell people I'm alcohol free and I, I'm ready for all the different reactions. And I almost do it now as, a, again, it's like a badge of courage or a way yes. to open up the <laughs> conversation. And yeah. I imagine certain people are feeling uncomfortable when I'm so kind of open and free about mm. being alcohol free. And so that's really a big through line in my coaching. I actually, what's interesting is I'm attracting successful leaders and CEOs now that either have a, a drug problem or an alcohol problem. And they don't, they're not like wanting to go to AA. They're not wanting to go and they're actually like, would you help me? And mm -hmm. um, it's really interesting to see these guys that are worth millions of dollars. They've built these incredible careers and they have these, you know, these substance challenges and they're reaching out to me because they know they, they, they know me as a friend and they know that I'm alcohol free and they know my brother's story, which I know we're going to get into. So, uh, yeah, I know it's a really long winded story there. Um, but I figured I'd just unpack all of it so we can take it wherever you want to go. Yeah, no, I have a question because I'm this, I get this question and I hate this question, but I feel like therefore I know people are going to have it is how long, how long did it take? I know it's the worst question, but how long did it take from going? I'm completely uncomfortable speaking to women without this glass in my hand to 
I'm going to walk into a room and feel totally confident about saying I'm alcohol free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm probably not a great case study where they're going to be like, oh, oh, Jeff can do it. It's so easy for him. I think it, it didn't take long for me. Um, I think because I'm a performance coach, because I have the, the, the synapses firing in my brain of like positivity and performance. And, you know, I've lived that really, for the most part, clean life as an athlete. And, mm. you know, I, I, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. You know, a lot of athletes, they, they far exceeded my, I, I, I joke that I was almost famous. You know, I played against all these guys that you mentioned earlier and Sampras and Federer and, and Chang, but I was almost famous. I was a draw filler. Unless you really followed tennis in our era, you didn't know who I was. But if you did follow tennis, you knew. So, but I see guys that, you know, have won gold medal in the Olympics. They've, they've, they're top 10 in the world and they're riddled with anxiety. They're, they're taking medication. They're, um, taking sleep pills to sleep at night. I mean, it's a real epidemic, if you will. So I consider myself one of the lucky ones that when I was 24 years old, I went on this holistic path. Mm -hmm. So then when I made this transition and like, how long does it take? It wasn't hard for me because I was already living it as a coach and as an Mm -hmm. athlete. But what I will say to folks, and, and, and by the way, uh, to humanize me a little bit to say, oh, it's, you know, it's easy for Jeff. I've been doing a lot of deep healing work um, in the last couple of years and even more intense, intensely late, lately. And what I've realized is that tennis players and especially athletes, we are taught to stuff down our emotions and our feelings. And, you know, you have 25 seconds between points to bounce back. You don't have time to get into your feelings. You don't have time to be sad. You don't have time to be angry or feel grief. And so I think that actually does a disservice to athletes learning how to get in touch with themselves and their emotions. So I've really been working on that. And so when someone is uncomfortable about sharing their truths or being self-conscious or how long does it take, what I would say is go deeper with that is like, you know, can you start to work with your emotions and your thoughts and your limiting beliefs and look at it not as how long is it going to take is just in each moment, can you actually feel into it and go deeper with it than just saying, oh gosh, how long, I want to avoid this. How long is it going to take before I finally get to the point? It's not about how long it takes. Yeah, It's about unpacking and knowing Mm -hmm. yourself at a deeper level. And like my coach now is always like, okay, if you start feeling if you start noticing emotions and feelings, don't avoid it and distract, actually feel it, like learn to feel safe in your body with yourself. And I think that is like the, the foundation to build from And that you might surprise yourself. It may only take two weeks to shift from that. If you're through that, if you're willing to feel that more, it may take two years, it may take 10 years, but keep feeling and keep noticing and journaling and, and, working with someone to get clear on where those thoughts and those emotions are coming from. Yeah. I love that so much. I actually had a client just before this and she was in tears and she's like, how long am I going to feel like this? And I'm like, when was the last time you even cried? When was the last time you felt any of these feelings that you're telling me about? You know? Mm -hmm. And so I love that answer because it's It's, it's just so true. Yeah. You want to help her and others ask a different question. It's not how long. Yeah. It's not how long. It's mm-hmm. what a gift yeah. and you're supported and, and learn to feel safe in your body. Learn to feel okay that, that uncomfortable emotions are actually okay. We're not taught yep. that. And yeah. so that is, again, as a, as a man who, listen, alpha serving 130 miles an hour, playing on the biggest stages. I mean, it can't get more alpha than that, right? But I'm really intrigued by the soft skills. I'm intrigued by getting into our emotions and the stuff that is not talked about and the stuff that a lot of men struggle with. I want to be, if you will, might sound a little cheesy, but a beacon of light of like, hey, you can be masculine. You can be an alpha and also learn how to get in touch with your feelings and your emotions. Because when you do that, you're a better version of yourself and then Mm. you can show up for everyone around you. And the alcohol is like, the biggest hack around, I mean, it's also, it's the biggest hack. It's the biggest performance tip, but it's also very revealing onto, okay, what is this person avoiding? How are they distracting? How are they not showing up in the world? What pain do they have that they're not dealing with? And they're probably not aware of it. 
until they become aware of it. And they work with folks like you to really unpack that. And I just think it's a beautiful uh, mission or path that we're all on to open this up to the world. Because this wasn't exposed to me as a child, as a pro tennis player, as a coach, like the idea mm-hmm. of alcohol free, you think of people that drink alcohol, if you have an issue, you have to go to AA. And yeah. that never really resonated with me, uh, even with yeah. my brother, who again, Same. I know we're going to talk about, we were, we were really struggling with that whole concept and trying to find other ways to heal than that model. Not to say that model's wrong, it's helped a lot of people, but I think there are different ways to to create success and fulfillment in this area. Yeah. Can you tell us what happened with your brother? Yes. So, you know, the big reason we're doing this podcast is because of my brother. And, you know, I'm committed to sharing his story because I believe if there's one person that listens to a podcast or one of my speeches or connects with me when I'm when I'm coaching them, if there's one person that connects with his story and it, it could save a life. You know, it could change the trajectory of, of someone's life. And so with my brother, uh, my, my father remarried, uh, raised a family. I have three siblings that live in Florida. Uh, they're much younger. They're my half siblings. And my brother, Eric, was the oldest of the three. And so there's a 17 year age difference. I was 17 going off to Stanford when he was born. Um, they had me be his godfather as well. And so that obviously said a lot that, that my parents had enough faith in me that I would guide them, guide him if he needed help. And so, uh, fast forward, uh, he started, um, you know, teenage years, he started smoking pot. Uh, he actually was put on uh, ADD medication at age nine. And then, um, then he started getting into the, the, more serious drugs like alcohol. I'm sorry, not out. Well, alcohol, marijuana, and then it led to uh, more extreme uh, use of drugs. And that was in high school. And so I was on the pro tour doing my thing and he was really struggling. And I was actually struggling to transition from pro tennis to what's next. I'm 34 years old. I'm, I'm not doing as well as I'd like. I'm feeling lonely on the tour. I was I was, I was not listening to my heart. I was listening to my head. I kept pushing because I'm not a quitter and I just keep fighting. But if I would have listened to my intuition and my heart, I would have walked away. It was just very difficult. But the thing that got me to walk away was walking into my brother's room one morning when I was visiting New Year's Eve, actually December 30th, 2007, walking into his room and seeing him passed out on the floor and, uh, you know, foam coming out of his mouth. And, you know, he was basically, from my perspective, he was overdosing. So, uh, cocktail of drugs, get him to the hospital within six days. I got him into a rehab facility, which, um, was not necessarily AA based. It, it, it had this whole program of supplements and sauna and detox. And I really did the research and, um, got him into rehab. And then he came to live with me. Um, I moved, I quit tennis. I quit pro tennis that day that I saw him lying on the floor. I said, I'm done. This is a brother's love story. I'm going to I'm just going to do this. This, this is kind of my, in a way it was kind of my out. It was like my way of saying, okay, I have an excuse to quit tennis and I have a bigger calling. And so, uh, we moved in together in Denver. I bought my first home and, uh, within three months he started using drugs again and went back to Florida that led him on a destructive path that landed him in prison. He served a four year prison term, committed two fel- felonies that landed him there. And it was in prison. And this is what you know, you all talk about the power of our thoughts. It was in prison that he realized that he had been in the prison of his own mind his whole life. And he called me about a year and a half into his sentence. uh, And he said, Jeff, I want to change, but I have no idea how to do it. Imagine that like someone who's been on this path as a drug dealer and and a drug addict and, and abusing alcohol, he wants to change, but he doesn't even know where to start. And for me, I'm like, ah, it's easy. I've been doing this my whole life. So you know, you learn frame of reference where people are, are at. So I sent him a book. I sent him Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. And he read the book cover to cover. And it gave him his value system. It gave him a, a plan, a structure. And we would get on calls. He'd call me from the prison house phone. We'd get on calls every week. And he would share what he was working on. And, and, I, would, and I would give him tips on how he could keep kind of tweaking what he was doing. And, you know, he started meditating. He started journaling. He started doing all the things that we 
should be doing in, in real life. He was doing it in prison. He was cleaning the toilets before 5 a.m. He was being of service. He got into a, a speaking group. He learned how to become a speaker at the gavel club. Didn't even know he had that hidden talent. And so I really watched my brother transform his life. He became a total meathead. He was lifting weights like crazy and um, just a re- a, a, an absolutely remarkable transformation. And, and the lesson there is that, gosh, if my brother can do it, you know, solitary confinement for 50 days, maximum security, gang fights. Um, and, you know, this is a kid who came from the suburbs. You know, he could be any one of our sons, you know. And, um, you know, his mother raised him Catholic and, and, he, and he went to church every Sunday and my dad's into sports. I mean, there was no reason for it to go this direction. Um, but when he got out of prison, he was still on that path to really just knock it out of the park. And so I mentored and coached him for about three years. He won a speaking contest that got him a TEDx talk. We can attach the link um, to his talk that was 18 months after getting out of prison, started building an incredible online business. But the problem was that, in my estimation, he didn't have that solid foundation. He didn't have the healing work. He didn't have, he was trying. He was really trying. But the, the moment he got out of prison, he started drinking. And I mm-hmm. said, I said, Eric, not a good idea. Don't do it. Don't even go there, man. We've worked so hard. I get a little emotional uh, thinking about it, but he worked so hard. And I knew with his background, with the, with the propensity towards addiction, I said, don't even go there. And, you know, of course, if I could fast forward, like what I know now, I would have probably guided him in a different way. I just would say that, don't do it. And then that was that. And then he would say, I got it. He's like, a couple drinks, I'm good. I like my wine. And, you know, that led to more, you know, aggressive drinking and then ultimately to drugs again. And so I watched this three, three year, ascent, um, this incredible ascent where he was changing the world, podcasts and TED Talks. And, and he was a real thought leader in his industry. And then this, the moment he started using the hard drugs, uh, I watched this downward spiral for two and a half years. Um, and then five months ago, um, he accidentally overdosed uh, fentanyl, uh, fentanyl and cocaine. He was alone in a room in his, uh, in his roommate's uh, house. Uh, the door was locked. And he, you know, was hide, you know, hiding in his pain, and and that was, you know, that was it. And so when that happened, uh, obviously, I feel called to share this story. Uh, you know, it's so tragic, um, but obviously, I'm choosing to focus on the legacy and the positive and the life lessons, and maybe how we can do things different. Um, because he had a real powerful message. I thought we were going to be on stages together, so now I'm called to be on that stage. Uh, so yeah, again, if it can help anyone. And we can help unpack this and see where it maybe went sideways. I will say it was the alcohol that was the gateway. You know, the moment yeah. he started drinking, that was that that slippery slope that uh, many of us are on, right? You know, that idea of moderation, like yeah. it just doesn't work for most people. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah. I'm yeah. Wow. It's I think about how it's how it's sold to us as it's not the same as like the hard drugs. Yeah. And yet alcohol is a drug and how, how easy it is, it is for us to believe that it's okay if it's out, al- you know, it's okay. Cause it's just alcohol. And so, um, I'm so sorry for the loss of your brother. Thank Eric. you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, he, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I'm an Enneagram three. And if any of you follow the Enneagram, that's like, yep, the that's engineer. me too. Okay. We're the achievers. Yep. And yes. I don't spend a lot of time in the muck. I don't spend a lot of time in the, in the, in the feelings, which is again, why I'm working on this so deeply with myself. But you know, when I, when I do take 45 minutes to do a podcast and I get into my story, like I just get emotional, you know, it's like, it's just rough because like, I have people now that are like, gosh, that could have been me. Like I have, mm. I have people that are in recovery that are like, that could have been me and it's not for whatever reason. But it is fascinating that um, I'm being pulled into this world. I'm attracting clients that have challenges in this area. I'm on podcasts. Um, I know my keynote is, is strongly influenced by his story. So <laughs> we're together on it. Mm. 
Yeah, you totally are. You yeah. totally are. Um, in his TED Talk, uh, he said something that I just, I mean, like, this is just so true. And it just is, you don't, and for him, it was, you don't have to be in prison to be imprisoned by something. And yeah. I think of every single, when I listened to that and I heard that, I thought of every single client I've ever worked with mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the thousands I've coached in all of these groups and I, I, I can see their faces and think about how it really feels like that. It, it's, you're imprisoned by it and it starts with our thinking. Um, it starts with the thinking that leads to the feeling and um, there's so many parts of your story and that overlap with my story and, you know, our listeners and kind of that to avoid rejection and the belonging and the, you know, pushing down what we're feeling and never being taught to, that it's okay to be comfortable and and what we're feeling. And then where alcohol can make this kind of like tiny, I always say this, like tiny opening. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I, I was going to say it. It create We have yeah. this, we create this tiny opening in our lives for this alcohol thing because it's not a drug. It's just this thing that, you know, the elixir of yeah. life, it helps us have fun. It helps us, you know, connect to other people. And, um, and then the, the real life um, results of that, it's an addictive substance and it doesn't take much for it to, to lead to, gosh, just devastation on so many levels. And I see so much beauty in your and passion in your story, Jeff, that comes from that place of um, kind of living and sharing the memory of your brother and how, I mean, y'all listen to, listen to his TED talk because, yeah. wow, what a just uh, a firecracker, like just yeah. his energy. And, um, and I think it's amazing that to me, it feels like you get to kind of do this healing work for for yeah. both of y'all and, um, and what a gift that thank is you. for, for people that get to work with you and hear from you. Yeah. Thank you. My brother is a powerhouse and, uh, <laughs> yeah, by the way, I know I'm getting emotional. Um, and I want everyone to know I'm okay. Um, you know, I, I went to a speaker coach and they said, Hey, when you tell the sad stories and you're in that moment, the audience wants to know, all right, is this guy okay? I am okay. Right. I am. Um, I'm, I'm well, I'm well adjusted. I'm grounded in who I am. I have the tools and the strategies. I'm also comfortable letting these emotions come up and come out because it's it's part of that healing journey. And um, you know, you talked about prison and what was there's so many lessons with I think again with my story and my brother's story. You know, we have we have the tennis metaphor. Tennis is a metaphor of life, you know, all the limiting beliefs, all the thinking that holds us back, um, the self self-sabotage. And then we have my brother and this, the irony is that it took him going to prison and having these walls put around him. I, I look at it as structure, the structure put around him and the, the removal of distractions, if you will, mm. that allowed him to actually find freedom mm. to find, he found his freedom in a maximum security prison. Mm. And we look out in the world, what I noticed is the longer he was out of prison, the less free he was. He built a business from zero to $80,000 months in a year. Like that doesn't happen. Like that's not normal. But Mm -mm. that accelerated success is also his downfall. Like the money came too fast. And as soon as the money comes, your whatever your weaknesses are, they'll show up. Your addictions, whether it's women, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's Whatever the self-sabotage is, it will show up when you have money come into your life. So you better have your foundation set. You better have your faith in order. You better be around the right people that are going to hold you accountable. And you need to be accountable to yourself. You need to be able to be honest with yourself. And so, you know, he had his freedom. He had his freedom in prison. And when he got out, I just noticed he felt less and less free the more success, the more he had to sell product or or make pay the bills or be there for other people. And there are so many people, not at the extreme level as my brother, but so many of us, this is, this is really the journey. This is the hero's journey is to, to get into our bodies, get out of our minds and to use our minds in a, in a, in a constructive way. When we do use it, um, so many people are in prison all day long yeah. and the alcohol is actually 
a solution to the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Alcohol is solving our problems. It happens yeah. to be a poor solution, but it is a solution. And yeah. we're so unconscious to it. And like you said, we're so conditioned that drinking is fun. It will help me relax. Um, I don't have to feel. I don't have to mm -hmm. feel my body. And it's the opposite. If you want true liberation and freedom, you have to go through it. You have to go through the pain. You have to go look back at your childhood and your trauma and heal that. Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing, have the courage to do it. And, and again, most people don't even have the awareness that this is going on, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where we're, this is our work is to help, help people see this. And then the next step is, okay, now what do we do about it? You know, what's the plan? How do, what are my daily actions? A lot of people aren't willing to make the changes in their life because they're, they're comfortable. But the only thing we have in life, the only thing that is certain is change, impermanence. Like nothing stays the same. And when we grip onto it and we hold on to, we want things to be the way they are, that's where we're in prison. We yeah. have to, it's so, it's so interesting. The paradox of life is it's, I'm getting deep here. It's just everything we think to be true, we have to just kind of like dismantle and question mm -hmm. and challenge. And that's what I love you know, about, you know, being open-minded about thinking and changing our thinking mm -hmm. is it, it allows us to grow and to learn. And that's why we're on this planet is to grow and learn. It's not about the money. It's not about the achievements. It's every situation, good or bad, is did we grow and learn? And can we keep elevating? Love that. Yeah. It's, it's also like that difference too, when, you know, when we were talking about like, well, how long does it take for me to step into this, you know, confidently going into a room and saying like, I'm alcohol free and what comes from that? Because I remember being terrified of that and then how different it is now for me too. And, and thinking about how, um, you know, it's that experiential, you know, I'm going with this too, Christy, it's the experiential knowledge that we get to go through, like, instead of saying, um, I just don't want to be uncomfortable in this. How do I avoid the discomfort? It's like, no, how do I get to experience the growth and the goodness and the abundance in this place? It's not, I just want to, I just, I just want to not drink anymore. I want to feel relief from that. I don't want to deal with that anymore. It's like, no, like we actually get so much more when we're shifting our mindset towards what we do get to experience. And then through the healing work through because the mind and body are connected. Hello, they are connected. Who knew? But they yeah. they are. And the more that we can step into that, lean into that discomfort and heal what needs to be healed, that's what leads to the transformation. That's the experiential knowledge that we get um, that yeah. creates a completely different you know way for us. And I, I love how your story. I think about how yeah, it's just it's just a really a really unique and beautiful story. And, um, I'm so, I'm so grateful that you've, thank you. Yeah. Shared it here and your brothers as well. Thank you. Yeah. If there was one tiny new action that you could leave or thought or action or anything, um, to leave with our, our listeners, what, what would that be? I'm going to give you two. Okay. I like it. It's podcast plus time. Um, <laughs> So the first one, and I've shared it on other podcasts, but I want to keep this, I want to keep this alive um, because on another podcast, the, the, the podcast interviewer said that uh, it was probably the most profound thing that he had ever heard on the hundreds of episodes they, they did. So I'm not putting you guys on the spot that you have to say that as well, but I do think it, <laughs> it means something. Um, so my brother and I, when he started using again, um, and I found out you know, I was angry, you know, I've been, I've been angry many times with the relapses and the back and forth. And, you know, I poured my heart and soul into trying to help him and my family did everything we could. Um, and so we were estranged for the last year, um, before he ultimately passed away. And, um, you know, I, I always have struggled. I've struggled with this because I think I'm pretty good with boundaries. I don't think I'm like, world-class yet, but I think I'm pretty good. Um, and so I always held a hard boundary. If my brother was using drugs, um, I wasn't really going to have anything to do with his life. I took a hard stance and I now know that, you know, with someone who's struggling with addiction, that can be very hurtful, right? That you're not there for them, um, in any way, shape or form, basically. 
And I was the kind of the hardliner in the family. Um, and I got coaching on that of like, that's, a, that's one way to do it. But looking back on it now, like what I would do differently and what I encourage anyone that's listening, there are a lot of people that are estranged out there or have strained relationships with family members or friends or haven't talked to, talk to them for years. If I could go back, I would send my brother a text every month that we were estranged. And I would just say, I love you. That's it. I would say, yeah, I would say I love you. And, you know, whether you're struggling with a drugs or addiction or alcohol or not, I think, and he might not have changed his behaviors. This, the same fate may have taken place, but I think just him knowing, I knew he knew, but like, just that reach out. So anyone that's listening, if you, if, if you're called to reach out to someone who's struggling and just say, I love you because like, that's it. Like, just because I love you and I'm working on that. Um, that's not an easy thing to do in our world around that conditional kind of that conditional, if you do this behavior, then I'm not going to blah, blah, blah. Um, but that's what I would have done. And so I encourage everyone to reach out and say, I love you. The second one is what I've, what I finished with at the end that I'm really deep into, well, I'm going to give, they're going to be double here, two more. So I'm going to give three. Uh, one is to I like really, your style. This, yeah, let's just, <laughs> yeah, this is, I, I, I like three. This is how the I power roll. of threes. We got three of us on today <laughs> and my three core steps. But uh, one is when you start to get into your body and you start to notice the uncomfortable feelings, whether it's sadness or grief and it's in your heart or it's in your throat or your gut, start to do that more. Like see if you can take 30 seconds or a minute just to get out of your head and, and feel in your body and know that it's a guidepost for you. It's a, it's a, it's a mm -hmm. guidepost towards knowing yourself at a deeper level because everyone's got the monkey mind. Practice getting into your body um, 30 minutes a day. I'm sorry, 30 seconds a day, one minute a day. And then related to that, accept the fact that everything is impermanent. It's like nothing stays the same. There's always change and uncertainty. And I think if we can embrace uncertainty and change mm -hmm. and, and embrace that, like truly say, you know what? I don't know what's coming next, but I'm going to just trust the process. Em embracing uncertainty is something, a big mindset shift that could help a lot of people. Yeah. Nate, are you okay? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Good. <laughs> we had to sound embrace, like you fell over. Christy, embrace the uncertainty there. Of <laughs> embrace what the uncertainty. It's my... kind of like you fell over. <laughs> my, no, my, y'all, my, uh, my kids stole my computer charger thing <laughs> and my battery is about, this is, Y'all, summertime, okay. Yeah. Podcasting with the kids home. The this uncertainty is, oh. of power cords. I get it. Yes. I've done it before. <laughs> I don't even have kids and I still forget to plug in the power cord. Cords, I'm like, so. why? It's never unplugged. Why is it unplugged? Because, and it's missing. Because, yeah, this is, this is what happened. So <laughs> embrace uncertainty and discomfort. The discomfort that I'm feeling right now that you're dropping like massive wisdom. And I'm like, oh, crap. My, my computer yeah. is literally about yeah. to die. <laughs> So let's, um, so as a, as a speaker and a coach, let me summarize, so, yeah. tell people, I love you when you're not <laughs> very close to yes. them right now. Yeah. Start feeling your feelings in your body. You'll, you'll yes. be safe. You will be okay. It's going to be okay. Even if the pain is intense, yeah. it's a guidepost and three, embrace the uncertainty of life. You do those three things. I think things start getting a lot better for you. Yeah. And it, I love that. So, it's so true. That's what I work with. I mean, that's probably the hardest thing that my clients that we work on together is feeling what they are not accustomed to feeling and totally, yeah, tapping into the, like you said, the guideposts that like the sensations in our bodies, they are here to teach us, to show us, to give us some, some amazing clues about, um, you know, about ourselves and about our world. And so to pay attention to them is really the greatest gift. And I love your story and how it highlights all of that and just how you, how you do it too, how you practice it in real life and all of it. Yeah. I I've made a commitment that I can always only take my clients as deep as I'm willing to go with myself. <laughs> yeah, so I, I have to be doing the work. I have to be, yes. you know, doing the meditations. I have to be like 
reflecting. I have to be feeling, I have to do all the work myself so that I can take people on that journey to transformation. And so So I'm committed. I'm turning 50 in October and, you know, I'm on this second curve of life. You know, we're on the back half now and the back half is about sharing wisdom. It's about being of service to others. It's not about achievements. That was the first half of life. And so that is what I'm committed to. I'm committed to helping men and, and women and, and anyone really figure out that second curve. And here's the good news. You don't have to start the second curve when you're, you're 50. You can start that. You can start earlier. You can start to start learn at 38 these principles. over here. <laughs> start at 38. You can start at any moment to <laughs> tap you. into to tap but into that's that. When I started though. <laughs> oh. I was like, oh, we get to say we're 38. <laughs> we can all say we're 38 if we want. That's why I curve started, guys. I'm sorry. Oh my I'm gosh. Sorry. Jeff, tell I'm... everybody where they can find you. <laughs> okay. My website is jeffsalzenstein.com. Uh, that is where I do my executive coaching, performance coaching. Uh, you can find out information with the speaking. The other thing that I always do is um, to create that human connection because as a, as a tennis player, I spent a lot of time alone and I spent a lot of time disconnected because mm, I didn't yeah. play with a team. You know, Stanford University was, was playing four years at Stanford was my fondest memories because I played with a team. So I'm really big on connection and, and belonging. You mentioned this need. So I'm going to give my cell phone out. Uh, don't blow it up. But um, if anyone feels called to reach out to speak to me, has any questions about my brother or my journey, uh, I'm going to give my number. You could give it in the sh- show notes as well. 303, it's a Colorado area code, 303-882-9028. Because again, I feel like if my brother's story, my story can save a life, and that means a text message of like, hey, I'm really struggling. What do I do with this? Where do I go? I might be able to lead that person in the right direction. Love that. So good. So yeah, good. We'll, include, we'll include all of this. Thank you. Website, uh, Eric's TED Talk, your cell phone number. We'll include all of that in the show notes. And we are just sure. so grateful for your time, for your story, for your life, for for you, Jeff, thank you for um, joining us. And I really feel it's just the beginning, by the way. My life has been so full to this moment, but I hiked my first 14er yesterday. I've lived in Colorado most of my life, never hiked a 14er. I did it yesterday. I'm now going to do hike more 14ers. So your life can, your new life can start mm-hmm. at any time. And that includes yes. being alcohol free. So go for it. Love Yay. it. Well done. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. You can find all of our episodes at butjesusdrankwine.com and make sure you follow us over on the gram at Love Life Sober with Christy and Mead at I'm Not Sober, I'm Free. To learn more about what we do, you can visit our websites at meadhollandshirley.com and lovelifesober.com. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it with a friend or two. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't have to worry about missing a single episode. And if you love what we're doing, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. This helps more women who are feeling stuck and alone in the overdrinking cycle to find hope and encouragement. Thanks, ladies. We so appreciate you. We'll see you next week.